Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Evil Dead, which had its hometown premiere on October 15th, 1981, at the historic Redford Theater in Detroit, Michigan, but which didn't see wide release until April of 1983. Written and directed by Sam Raimi. And let me make it clear from the beginning. I don't have a hope in hell of making this a comprehensive account of the creation of this movie, because this is probably one of the best documented film productions in the history of cinema. Evil Dead has a legion of devoted fans, so many that there's actually a whole documentary devoted just to its fan base, and it was made right at the dawn of the video era, which allowed people to track down virtually everybody involved with the shoot while their memories were still fresh and get the exact details of what happened. There are so many books, websites, and featurettes about this that all I can really do is give you the general thrust and tell you that if you want to know more about literally anything I mentioned, it's out there. But it all begins with Sam Raimi. The Detroit native began making movies at around 13 years old, using a Super 8 camera his dad brought home to shoot short films in his backyard with his brothers Ted and Ivan. When he met Bruce Campbell and Ellen Sandweiss in high school, he suddenly had a leading man and a leading lady for his movies, and he quickly developed an ambition to spend his whole life behind the camera. And I feel like it's deeply, deeply important to understand this ambition, because one of the fundamental things everyone gets wrong about Evil Dead is that this was, deep down, a purely mercenary endeavor. Now that doesn't mean it's not good. Sam Raimi is one of the most talented filmmakers of his generation, frankly more talented even than some of his much more lauded contemporaries, while Stanley Kubrick was spending over a year shooting The Shining with the latest and most expensive in Steadicam technology, Sam Raimi was achieving much the same effect with a 16mm Aeroflex duct taped to a board. But his ambition was to get to Hollywood, get a job, and make movies professionally for a living. And like Don Coscarelli, he was pretty agnostic about horror as a genre, but had strong, strong opinions about its profitability potential. When his first movie, a comedy called It's Murder, made no splash save for a single spooky scene that got a jolt out of the otherwise indifferent college kids who saw it, he decided that he needed to make something that would make money, draw audiences, and act as his calling card to studio executives. He tried to make it good, not because he was passionate about horror, but because he wanted to show that he could make very good movies if someone gave him the chance. And I really think that's worth keeping in mind, because the enduring myth about the Evil Dead is that of a small crew of college kids living out their dream of making a genuine horror movie using nothing but pluck and ingenuity, and dozens, if not hundreds, of subsequent horror films, some of which we've covered already, some of which we'll be covering in future episodes, have been made by people who watched this, got inspired, and made their own low-budget indie horror flicks. And while that is what happened, Raimi didn't make it for the same reasons most of the people who followed him did. He made it because he wanted to show off what he could do, and low-budget horror attracts more attention than low-budget anything else. That wasn't to say he didn't work hard at it, though. 
Well, Rob Tappert, Sam's brother Ivan's college roommate, and an economics major who understood the ins and outs of making an LLC to fund the production, went around to raise financing from anyone and everyone who could chip in a little cash, mostly area dentists and the family members of the cast and crew, Sam went on weekly binges at the nearby drive-ins, studying exploitation horror films from Italy and Mexico to determine what worked and what didn't in terms of shot composition and dramatic structure. By the time they were ready to start shooting, he'd made himself an expert on the genre, and had a number of ideas on how to create unique and inventive scares. And the rest, well, we'll cover as we go on. Starting with the cast. It begins with Campbell and Sandweiss in the roles of Ashley Williams and his sister Cheryl, both of whom had gone along with Raimi from high school to college and were dragooned into service first on the short film Into the Woods that they produced as a proof of concept, you can find that pretty easily on YouTube, and then on his big horror feature. Sandweiss decided after shooting that the literally agonizing experience of making a motion picture wasn't for her, we'll get into it as we go on, but suffice it to say that packing a bunch of unsupervised 20-year-olds into an unheated cabin in the middle of winter and giving them real guns, knives, and blunt instruments to work with to make a movie resulted in several injuries. And she retired from acting until 2006 when her friend Bruce lured her back for his horror comedy My Name is Bruce, after which she made a few other appearances in other Campbell-Ramey joints. But Bruce Campbell persisted despite a frustrating lack of recognition for his lead role in this movie, doing a cameo in Ramey's follow-up Crime Wave, and a film by Evil Dead crew member Josh Becker called Thou Shalt Not Kill Except, which also starred Ramey, and which I hope to cover someday. We'll pick up Bruce's story again in 1987, and in two episodes' time. Appearing as Ash's love interest, Linda, is Betsy Baker, a working actor in Detroit who mostly did commercials and industrial shorts when she saw a classified ad calling for auditions for a new horror film. Baker apparently insisted on meeting the producers in public, not necessarily the worst decision when it came to Rob Tappert by all accounts of the era, and took the role that would come to define her career. It didn't further it very much, though, at least not at first, and she returned to her old jobs for much of the 80s and 90s before discovering that the low-budget indie flick she did as a young woman had developed a cult following that stretched all the way through Hollywood. This led her to almost a hundred roles in film and television, many of which were horror movies that traded on the fame of an authentic Evil Dead star in the cast, but she's also done guest appearances on things like Grey's Anatomy and NCIS. And profoundly regretting their appearances in The Evil Dead, at least for a while, are actors Richard DeManincourt as Scott and Teresa Tilly as Shelley. DeManincourt was credited as Hal Delrick and Tilly as Sarah York, primarily because at the time they were members of the Screen Actors Guild, and appearing in a non-union production would be a violation of union rules. Unfortunately, their pseudonyms fooled nobody, and both were fined for their contributions to this film. Tilly didn't let that deter her, becoming a stage actor as well as doing a few films. As with Baker, there are no shortage of people who like putting The Evil Dead on their poster in some capacity, even if it's not the director or the male lead they're advertising. But DeManincourt left acting and had no real idea how popular the movie he made was until years later when he attended his first horror convention and was stunned by the size of the line in front of his table. Now that covers the cast, but there are a few crew members worth singling out for special mention before we get to the movie itself. 
The film was edited by Edna Ruth Paul, a local film editor who'd done work on a number of industrial shorts, and she was assisted by a young man named Joel Cohen, who was fresh out of college and learning the business of editing film. Cohen was very excited by the movie he was helping put together, and he and his brother Ethan became close friends with Raimi and helped him in his efforts to find distribution in ways large and small. Raimi returned the favor when the Cohen brothers made their first movie, and they wound up with something of a career in movies, to the tune of 42 Academy Award nominations and six wins. And while he didn't have that kind of track record, the film really would not be the same without Tom Sullivan. Sullivan did the spectacular stop-motion effects that appear throughout the film, as well as creating the prop of the Kandarian dagger and the Book of the Dead, here called the Naturam de Monto, which would become integral to the series' legacy. Sullivan was famously a big fan of Equinox, which we covered last episode, and there's no question that he drew inspiration from the demonic tome in that film when he created the bizarre illustrations and strange otherworldly writing in this film's iconic prop. He also was inspired by William Blake, the infamous poet and artist whose surreal visions also formed the inspiration for the killer's viewpoint in the novel Red Dragon. And last but not least, Joseph LaDuca, whose career includes Hercules, Xena, The Librarians, Leverage, and the new Chucky show that's currently airing on sci-fi, as well as a ton of famous genre movies, got his start here composing for Raimi on this movie and vastly improving the atmosphere of the film with his sinister score. This isn't the last we'll be hearing from him. Before we go any further, a trigger warning. This film does feature scenes of sexual assault and sexual violence in addition to the fantasy gore and horror, and it also features the male protagonists attacking their demonically possessed girlfriends in sequences that may trigger those who have a history with domestic abuse. If you're not comfortable with that, you may need to find another episode to listen to. Now on to the movie which doesn't open with Leduca's music, at least not at first. It opens with the eerie sound of a fly buzzing in the background as we initially see nothing but thick fog in the title card, The Evil Dead. Which wasn't the original title. They were going to call it Book of the Dead after the Nataram de Manto, but producer Irvin Shapiro told them no one was going to want to see a movie about a book. As the fog fades, we get a slow, rolling pan across the surface of a leaf-and-stump-clogged pond, swooping and diving around obstacles in something that looks like a shot from a low-flying drone, but was actually Sam Raimi in an inflatable raft with an Aeroflex camera taped to his hand. One of the trademarks of Raimi's directorial style is a ton of fluid camera movement, almost as if the camera is a participant in the action, and in this movie it is and he used a number of tricks to get that effect in the absence of a steady cam. Each one of them had its own nickname among the crew, like the Ramo Cam, a camera mounted on a board that jutted just far enough ahead to allow it to break through a window without showing the far end in the lens, and the Vaso Cam, a camera mounted on one board, which was in turn mounted on another board smeared with Vaseline to allow it to slide freely. The result looks like nothing else in low-budget movie history, and it's a big part of why this film is so greatly beloved, even by film scholars who might not be enthused about gory horror. It's just visually inventive and spectacular, well beyond its low-budget means, and in fact well beyond many high-budget productions of the time. A lot of the things that Sam Raimi did in this film with the camera have gone on to become industry standards because he forced everybody to up their game because nobody could say, oh, we can't afford to do that anymore. 
The unseen presence moves from the water into the forest, swooping and sweeping toward a group of five people driving along a narrow country road in a 1973 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. This car has become part of the legend not just of the Evil Dead trilogy, but of Raimi himself. In addition to being Ash's car in every installment of the series he's in, it's also Uncle Ben's car in the Spider-Man movies, the lead character's car in Crime Wave, and it's made at least a cameo in every single movie he ever made except for the western The Quick and the Dead, and a persistent rumor has it that he tried to sneak it in there as well. It's Raimi's own personal car from high school, and he keeps it lovingly restored despite a good deal of teasing from his friend Bruce Campbell on the subject. The car heads up into the mountains of Tennessee. Among much banter and singing, I'm guessing they're far enough out of range of any radio stations that all they're getting is static on the car radio, and this is of course decades before any other kind of in-vehicle entertainment system, until the mysterious and unseen force finds them just as a truck comes the other way. The wheel jerks out of driver Scotty's hands, sending them spinning out of control straight toward the massive truck, but he manages to right it and steers them onto the shoulder just in the nick of time. As with many of these sequences, they couldn't afford stunt drivers, so everything you see is real. That's something that's been romanticized over the years, mainly because the people who make movies like this and die in car crashes don't have entertaining stories to share on a DVD commentary track. They continue on their way toward the cabin they've rented for the weekend, drinking moonshine out of mason jars, passing a pair of rural grotesques who wave stupidly at them, in actuality Raimi himself and producer Rob Tappert, and driving over a rickety bridge that drops crossbeams into the river below at their passage, and at one point breaks entirely in one spot, sending a wheel crashing through to spin unsupported. But eventually they make it over, and pull up toward a dilapidated shack that looks very much like it's seen better days. And in fact it had. The real cabin used for this shoot had no heat or electricity when they arrived, and several inches of horse manure in the living room, necessitating an elaborate cleanup project. Most of the cast and crew lived in the cabin while they shot, which allowed for more filming time, but which was also something of an ordeal that nobody remembers fondly. They'd gone to Tennessee to shoot in hopes of getting milder winter than they could find in their native Michigan, but it turned out to be one of the most brutal winters in the state's history, and everyone wound up freezing and exhausted for several months. Compounding things, Raimi decided to try to get through the material as quickly as possible to minimize the shooting time in the abandoned cabin, and wound up shooting for 19 and sometimes 20 hour days with no one getting more than 4 or 5 hours of sleep a night. The result was a brutal ordeal, about which Raimi famously said to his cinematographer Tim Philo, it's never going to be this bad again. But it's never going to be this good again either. The group approaches the cabin as a porch swing rocks ominously into the wall, making a rhythmic thudding noise that provides a sinister diegetic soundtrack to their arrival. Just as Scotty approaches the door and grabs the keys from the door jam, the others standing well back and watching him anxiously, the movement and the sound both abruptly stop. It's worth noting that at this point, Scotty is kind of low-key being presented as our main character. He's the adventurous one, and he seems to be driving the plot with his decisions. Certainly he seems like a more likely protagonist than any of the three female characters, all of whom are... Well, they're pretty underserved in this movie, as only a trio of women written by 20-year-old college guys in the early 80s can be. This film is many things, visually inventive and audacious and stunning in its horror, but 
Feminist is decidedly not one of them. And putting Ash with the women in this sequence physically is intentionally placing him in the group of potential victims. Scotty lets everyone in, and they find a dusty old room that thankfully has electricity. The others unpack, it's pretty obvious from the brief sequence where all three women throw things to and at Ash, that this is where the movie Sledgehammer got its idea for the much longer sequence of the same theme. And that similarity continues as Scotty decides to go have a look around in the shadowy tool shed, where gourds and other items hang from the ceiling in a tribute to the brilliant production design of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's a clear influence from Hooper on this movie, with plenty of extreme close-ups on faces in distress. It's definitely Leduca's score here that does a lot of the work, with an ominous piano theme that sticks to minor chords and very definitely unsettles. It's also worth mentioning that a lot of what we get here in the first third or half of the movie mirrors things that happen once the horror gets rolling. So we get Scotty reaching for the keys above the door, complete with an overhead shot looking down at him, as a foreshadowing of a later sequence where Cheryl desperately scrambles for them with something chasing her through the woods. Everything that Raimi uses the camera to draw attention to now, from the mirror in the living room to the chains in the tool shed to the way Ash and Linda play peekaboo, is going to come back later in a more overtly horrifying manner. I mention this because one of my strong contentions is that this movie influenced a number of very famous filmmakers active in the industry today, and that kind of mirroring is a hallmark of someone whose movies we're going to examine in a few episodes' time. Hint, his last name rhymes with Bright. But even now there are threads of sinister disquiet running through the story. Cheryl is sketching the clock in the living room when it stops suddenly, and as she hears a sinister whisper from the woods saying, Join us. She begins to draw a book with a face on it, with such helpless intensity that her pencil digs clean through the sheet of paper. It's hinted at that Cheryl is more sensitive to the supernatural than the others, but honestly a lot of what we get in the movie about the characters is only hinted at. The film doesn't spend a lot of time establishing the relationships among the primary cast or their reasons for being out here in the woods. It's there if you go looking for it. Cheryl is Ash's sister and the only one who uses his full name Ashley, and you see Shelley pairing off with Scotty and Linda pairing off with Ash in the various couple-centric scenes. But there's not a lot of detail, which is fine in this case because things go sideways on them so fast that you're a lot more concerned with their survival than their backstory. At dinner, the five of them engage in a little more banter, Ash makes an awkward toast in Greek that translates to party down, but it's quickly interrupted when the cellar door flies open on its own, having already rattled ominously when Cheryl had her artistic seizure earlier. Cheryl's all in favor of just closing it again and locking it this time, but Scotty decides to investigate just in case an animal got into the cabin. When he doesn't immediately return, Ash reluctantly follows and finds a cellar packed with bric-a-brac and random objects. This cellar didn't actually exist in the real cabin, and these sequences were filmed later on once the group returned to Michigan. And as with a few other movies I've mentioned on this podcast, like Night of the Living Dead and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the real problems with watching The Evil Dead is that it's impossible to fully put yourself in the place of a group of people who haven't seen The Evil Dead and aren't taking their experiences of watching that movie into account when making decisions. 
for a generation that's seen all the films that borrow tropes and narrative devices from the Evil Dead movies, like The Cabin in the Woods, it's obviously stupid to go poking around in the cellar, and frankly, even coming out to this place was pretty clearly a mistake. But these are people who haven't seen the movie they're starring in, and they don't know their job is to be an object lesson to the rest of us. Also, the shots of the group as framed by the cellar door itself, looking down at the camera, are wonderfully ominous. Again, Raimi does so much to make every shot look different than anything we've ever seen in a movie before. When Ash goes down the stairs, we get more mirroring. There's a lovely 360 pan of the room that was probably inspired by William Castle's House on Haunted Hill that gives us the lay of the land, and some overhead shots of pipes dripping with water. It will not be water later. Ash finds a second room behind the first, where it turns out Scotty is waiting to play a prank on him and gives us the first sign that he's the jerk who gets his comeuppance material and not the hero we thought he was. And he's already found a shotgun, which he points directly at Ash's head, something he thinks is hilarious and not a life-threatening breach of firearm safety, as well as a tape recorder, an antique dagger with a handle made of bone, and a book full of sinister, creepy art. They bring it upstairs because they don't have television, and entertainment is a little thin on the ground. Famously, there's also a torn poster of the Wes Craven movie The Hills Have Eyes, which is a tribute to a background detail in that 1977 movie of a torn poster for the movie Jaws. Raimi intended it to mean that just as Craven's film made Jaws look tame, his movie was going to make The Hills Have Eyes look tame. Craven, in turn, had Nancy watch The Evil Dead in a desperate attempt to stay awake in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, only to wind up dozing off because the movie simply wasn't scary enough. Apparently both men took the jokes in the spirit of fun they were intended. As the gang smoke pot and drink booze in front of the fireplace, apparently there was an entire night's shooting of this scene that had to be scrapped when the cast decided to drink real booze and smoke real pot for quote-unquote authenticity and wound up too stoned to deliver dialogue, Ash plays the tape recording, which is dictated by a professor who excavated both the book and the dagger from the ruins of a lost city called Kandar, presumably taken from the city in Pakistan of the same name, and identifies them as Sumerian. Pakistan is quite a distance away from Sumeria, but not so far that you couldn't picture someone traveling to it in ancient times. He calls the book the Nataram de Monto, translated as the Book of the Dead, although from what language we're never told, and claims it's bound in human flesh and inked in human blood with a variety of demon-summoning incantations that allow the bodiless entities described in the book to possess human hosts. Cheryl tries to turn the recording off right about then, but Scotty insists he just wants to hear a little more, and as the others listen horrified, the professor presents a phonetic transcription of those incantations. Cheryl shrieks at Scotty to turn it off, but outside something tears its way up from deep beneath the earth, and a tree branch comes crashing through the window of the cabin. And there's obviously a lot to unpack here. First, let's tackle the assertion that this scene rips off Equinox. This seems to be based on a conflation of three sequences in that movie, at least one of which Raimi wouldn't even have been able to see at the time, 
The film opens with a framing sequence of a reporter listening to a tape recorder where protagonist David narrates his experiences. There's another later sequence where David reads off Professor Waterman's notes on the evil book they find, and that sequence was narrated by Fritz Lieber in the original 1967 short film, which was never given a wide release in a similar stentorian fashion to the narrator here. Actually, Bob Dorian, longtime presenter at AMC. But as familiar as it all feels, there's never a point in Equinox where anyone listens to a tape recording talking about a Book of the Dead, which wouldn't have been unique or original to Equinox anyway. Which brings us to our second point, both Equinox and Evil Dead were inspired by the same person, H.P. Lovecraft, who invented a book of dark magic and forbidden secrets for his own short stories that he called the Necronomicon, which also translated as the Book of the Dead. Lovecraft stories all took place in the same fictional universe, and after his death, the controversial author August Derleth re-edited and reprinted several of those stories, along with extra material he'd written, to tidy up the cosmology of Lovecraft's world into what we now call the Lovecraft mythos, or sometimes just the mythos for short. Durleth's interference created an opening for many other writers to add their own takes on the mythos, including a book in the late 1970s that purported to be the quote-unquote real Necronomicon, and that drew from Sumerian mythology for the inspiration, and there's virtually no doubt that both movies were cribbing from Lovecraft for their ideas. The fact that they seem similar is due to that shared source material and not because one was ripping off the other. And that brings us to our third point. This incantation, which at one point uses the phrase Samon Sarab Daris Haikardandarosa, which phonetically translates to Sam and Rob are the hikers down the road, a tip to the duo at the beginning, appears to be what summons the demons we're going to spend the rest of the movie terrified of. But what about the steering wheel moving on its own, the cellar door flinging itself open, and Cheryl's unexpected freeform drawing of the book? For that matter, why weren't the demons already active? Because, spoiler alert, they already possess the professor and his wife. We're not given a ton of answers, beyond the claim that the demons sometimes go dormant but can never be truly destroyed. But given that the professor is an unreliable narrator and not a true expert, it's possible that he didn't really understand what he was talking about or summoning into being, and that this would all make more sense if you studied the book more thoroughly. Ash is upset with Scotty for frightening his sister, and Scotty quickly gets defensive over it, but everyone decides to forget the argument and turn in. Ash and Linda stay up listening to the storm, though, and Ash surprises his girlfriend with a pendant that's a little silver magnifying glass on the end of a chain. There's a cute scene we'll see referenced later, where she reaches for the box while he pretends to be asleep, and every time she looks away, his eyes open. But it's more or less played as genuinely sweet and romantic, even though the pendant looks exactly like what you'd expect a flat-broke college student to be able to afford. Now, it's my headcanon that he was giving her a magnifying glass necklace so that when he eventually proposed, she'd be able to look at her engagement ring through it and it would look bigger. But the real reason was that the planned denouement involved Ash focusing the morning sunlight onto the Naturam to set it on fire. When that shot proved utterly impractical, they abandoned it, but, well, we'll get there. As they all retire, we see the unseen force swooping outside the cabin. Yes, I know, we see the unseen force, but it is all done from its perspective, so every time we go into that camera view, we know that it's the unseen force doing it. 
looking from window to window and giving us a bit of gratuitous nudity from Teresa Tilly. When it sees Cheryl alone, it calls to her again, saying, Join us. And this time she decides to go outside and see who's out there. This is obviously a very, very bad idea, but we can assume that the Force is exerting some sort of influence on her by now, given her connection to it earlier. As she wanders into the woods, she hears something moving around in the fog, and we see trees crashing to the ground as it comes closer. But she's instead grabbed by vines that wrap around her wrists and ankles, pull her to the ground, and drag her into a spread-eagled pose, and then... Well, there's no easy way to put it. They rape her with a tree branch. It's thankfully not a lengthy scene, although it feels longer than it is due to the scenes of Sandwise being bound and manipulated by the vines, but it's really indefensible, even given the transgressive atmosphere of brutal violence that permeates the film. Sure, there's plenty of gore and dismemberment and stabbings and shootings and general mayhem, but none of that other violence is sexualized, which makes this feel out of place and genuinely disquieting and not in a good way. It doesn't help that several pages of Rob Tappert's filming diaries were published specifically relating to this scene, where he expressed an uncomfortable amount of enthusiasm over Sandweiss's real and legitimate pain and suffering during this and the subsequent chase scene, her feet wound up bloody and bruised from running barefoot through the frozen woods over multiple takes. It's hard not to imagine that this sequence, which was reshaped in editing to be even more explicitly sexual, was one of the reasons Sandwise spent so long out of the industry, and certainly she had to feel betrayed by the way that her friends, who she trusted from their short films together, put her through the ringer. I know Raimi's apologized for it, I know he regrets it and wouldn't have put it in the film with the benefit of hindsight, and that's about the only positive takeaway I can bring from it. Sometimes we're kind of shitty people when we're 20, and hopefully we all get better with age. Cheryl frees herself after the assault and runs back to the cabin, barely making it back inside before the Force catches up with her. She demands to leave immediately, not wanting to wait until sunrise, and although absolutely nobody believes her claims about the woods attacking her, an unfortunately accurate metaphor for real sexual assault victims that was almost certainly unintentional, Ash nonetheless agrees to drive her back to the nearest town. But the bridge they drove over earlier is completely destroyed, one unfortunate aspect of the earlier sequence, which is corrected for the sequel, was that the wooden bridge was so rickety that you genuinely couldn't be sure whether this was supernatural action or just the ravages of time. I'm kind of glossing over this sequence a bit, because in plot terms it really is just, oh, hey, the bridge is out. But Raimi does so much to create tension here. The car takes several tries to start, convincing Cheryl that some supernatural force is at work just before she's almost maliciously contradicted by the revving engine. And there's an absolutely spectacular shot where Raimi takes advantage of a hill and some cunning camera placement to make it look as though Ash is somehow walking at a Dutch angle. A Dutch angle is where the camera is slightly tilted, usually about 15 degrees, giving the perspective that reality is off kilter. In this case, the ground itself was at a 15-degree angle, so Raimi placed the camera off-kilter and let Campbell walk straight upright. The two of them return to the cabin, where Linda and Shelley are testing their ESP with a deck of cards, and Ash listens through headphones to the rest of the recording, where he finds out that the professor chopped up his wife to prevent her undead body from attacking him, and he's certain he won't survive the night. 
This is the last we'll hear of him in this film, but he plays a bigger role and gets a name in the sequel. I have seen some books on zombie movies argue that this isn't a zombie movie, but instead a demonic possession film. But frankly, it's obvious that even if the monsters are alive when they get possessed, they're sure as hell not by the end. Um, spoilers. And then, oh man, this is it. The moment where Sam Raimi drops a brick on the accelerator and aims us straight for the climax. There's a palpable shift in tone as Linda tries to guess the next card, Shelley is lying and telling her that she's getting each one right, which may or may not be a direct influence on 1984's Ghostbusters, when suddenly Cheryl, who's staring out the window, begins to call out each and every card in the entire deck with perfect accuracy and increasing ferocity, and as she suddenly turns to face the others, floating into the air and snarling at them with a demonic visage, everything jumps into nightmarish horror almost in a single heartbeat. The possessed Cheryl promises the others that they will all die, that one by one the demons will take them, before collapsing to the floor. When they go to examine her, she lurches back to life. I'm Pretty sure this was shot in reverse. Raimi loves to shoot in reverse to create a weird characterization to motion in movies. And she stabs Linda right in the ankle with a pencil before gouging the wound in a viscerally awful manner. She then knocks Linda into the wall and ash into a bookshelf, and when it collapses on him, she advances with a horrible snaggletoothed grin and blank white eyes. These contact lenses were very early models, made of actual glass and so painful to wear they had to be removed every 15 minutes or so to prevent permanent eye damage. As I said, it's important to remember that while these behind-the-scenes stories are fascinating, we don't want to romanticize this kind of suffering as essential to creating true art. These days, you can just paint the eyes in white with CGI and everyone really is the better for it. Scotty fights Cheryl off, while Ash struggles to get out from under the bookshelf. Unconvincingly, if we're being truly honest. It's pretty clear that he's pushing up with one arm and down with the other. But it's a difficult thing to fake, and Campbell was all of 21 at the time. And he eventually shoves her into the cellar, locking it shut. There's enough give in the chains to allow her to look out at them, though. Her face now craggy with wrinkles and her hair a wild gray mop and they don't really have any doubt that she's not the person they came to the cabin with anymore. Ash puts Linda in their bed. Given how deeply she sleeps, it seems likely they gave her some of the recreational drugs as painkillers, and goes back out to talk to the others. Brilliantly, this whole scene is shot from Cheryl's perspective through the crack in the trapdoor, which gives the whole thing a menacing and creepy air that foregrounds the monster in the room. I cannot overstate just how much Raimi's direction turns this from a stock spam-in-a-can retread of Night of the Living Dead into something truly unsettling. So much so that you overlook the sometimes stilted performances and the low-budget production values. There are clear seams in the makeup the Deadites wear, and the moon is literally matted into the exterior shots, leaving an obvious square outline in the sky. Raimi creates terror as if by magic, and even when you see the little artifacts of artifice, all it does is remind you that human beings made this movie, and you too can make something just as brilliant if only you work hard at it. It's freaking gorgeous, even though it's gory and awful. With very few options in the absence of a bridge and their lack of familiarity with the area, the group agrees to wait until morning and then try to find another way out. 
Scotty tells Shelly to try to get some sleep, but when she goes into her bedroom, the unseen force smashes through the window. This is the Ramo cam at work, and it does give some very impressive broken glass flying out in front of the camera. When Scotty goes in to check on her in response to her screams, he finds her missing. I don't know if Raimi had seen Friday the 13th when he made this, but he does use a lot of the same tricks Sean S. Cunningham pulled in that movie to create suspense. Tight close-ups to restrict the flow of information coming into the audience, allowing them to imagine a jump scare at any moment, combined with strategically placed wide shots that place blackness and ominous openings behind them so that you can assume that they're going to be attacked at any moment. When Shelley does finally jump out and attack Scotty, clawing at his face, it's an impressive release of tension rather than a creation of it. Scotty staggers back out into the living room with Shelley wrapped around his waist, and when he flings her off, she goes straight into the roaring fire in the fireplace. Scotty pulls her out, shocked and horrified, and she delivers the unbearably creepy line, Thank you. I don't know what I would have done if I had remained on those hot coals burning my pretty flesh. She then grabs Scotty and tries to push his head into the fireplace, and when Ash tries to stop her, she throws him into another bookshelf. It's not his day for getting out from under inanimate objects. I remember when I first saw this, because I saw these movies in reverse order, I kept expecting Ash to have his hero moment and take on the protagonist role, and I kept being very surprised at how much he gets his butt kicked in this movie. But luckily, Scotty has his trusty knife, and he slashes at Shelley's wrist, which she then chews clean through, severing her own hand with her teeth in an impressive display of masochism. You get the feeling watching this movie that the demons are almost more interested in creating mental suffering than they are in killing, that they're getting their kicks out of tormenting the unpossessed humans, and they know they could end this game at virtually any time if they wanted to. Scotty stabs Shelley with the Kandarian dagger, and she lets out an impressive 40-second long scream of pure primal agony before collapsing to the floor with white fluid, actually 2% milk, squirting out of her mouth and severed wrist. Supposedly Raimi did this because he thought it would be less unsettling to the MPAA if he didn't just use blood all the time, but it's safe to say that this tactic didn't work at all. Not only did the film get an X rating, but Raimi's film wound up on the list of video nasties in the UK, the second list, confiscated when found but not actually prosecuted for distributing obscene material, and Raimi himself was called in to testify in hearings in Britain on whether he thought his movie had a deleterious effect on society. Suffice to say, this had a pretty profound effect on the sequel. But just when the audience might be thinking, oh, the heroes have discovered the demon's secret weakness and the dagger can kill them, Shelley gets right back up again and attacks Scotty some more, and he grabs the axe from a stunned and catatonic Ash who'd picked it up and begins dismembering his own girlfriend. She screams, no, you love her, but it's to no avail. Scotty doesn't stop until she's a pile of body parts and the lens itself is soaked with blood. Supposedly, one of the group's friends told them, just make sure to keep the blood running down the screen, and they took his advice. Ash and Scotty gather up her pieces in a sheet and bring them outside to bury them. This is another good argument that the demons are just playing with them, by the way. They could have possessed either or both while they were outside. 
After they go back in, Scotty decides he's had enough. He doesn't want to wait for sunrise, and he doesn't care that Linda can't walk on her injured foot. He's going to go out and look for a hiking trail or some other way back to civilization, and as far as he's concerned, Ash can either stay behind and look after his girlfriend or come along. He doesn't care which. It's a striking heel turn from the character we thought was the protagonist up until now. He's not boldly and heroically offering to go for help and bring someone back. He's straight up saying he is leaving to save his own skin and the others can just fucking lump it. We can be pretty sure he's not going to survive this choice, even if it did seem like a good idea to go wandering around the demon-haunted woods in the middle of the night, which it definitely doesn't. He leaves, and Ash goes back in to check on Linda, but a network of black lines spreads out from her ankle wound and she sits up, possessed and giggling. And it is so obvious that the demons waited to pull this trick until Ash was there to see it. The spiderweb effect was created with stop motion. A stand-in, or fake shemp as the movie calls them, was asked to stay perfectly still for a brutally long period while Sullivan meticulously drew the lines onto her skin. It was so uncomfortable that she threw up as soon as she can move again, so let's once again remind each other not to romanticize this kind of DIY indie filmmaking even though the results are very impressive. Ash flees the room and in fact goes all the way out through the front door and onto the porch, only to be clutched at by a badly injured Scotty as he staggers his way back to the cabin. Turns out that yes, demon-haunted woods are pretty impassable at night, and he's literally been impaled through the stomach by a branch as well as raked across the face. Linda sits in the doorway, giggling and watching them with a face that looks like a painted doll and blank white eyes and a long white dress that perfectly fits the description of all those virginal robes we've been discussing as far back as censored. She's not interested in attacking yet, she just wants to upset and unsettle Ash while he tries to tend to his dying friend, and Cheryl is happy to join in the emasculating taunting from her place in the cellar. There's a quote from Margaret Atwood, Men are afraid that women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them. I think this is the film that expresses most purely that masculine fear. Ash tries to get Linda to stop giggling by backhanding her repeatedly, an unpleasant scene that Raimi has also said he probably wouldn't include today, and prepares to shoot her before she suddenly reverts back to her human form and pleads with him not to let the demons take her again. Ash embraces her, but just then he hears a similarly reverted Cheryl begging him to let her out of the cellar, and when he comes closer, a pair of demonic hands burst through the floorboards to grab him. It's clear that either the demons can impersonate their former hosts, or that they can relinquish and renew their possession any time it suits them. Given that later lore establishes that the souls of these hosts are literally being tortured in hell, it's far more terrifying, I think, to imagine that they briefly let their victims free before once again consigning them to the pit. When Linda returns to her possessed state as well, singing, We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you. Ash drags her out of the cabin and closes the door. This is, um, not a great long-term strategy, but I think it's safe to say that he's under a lot of stress at the moment and maybe not thinking clearly. He goes back in and gives Scotty some water, but it overflows his open mouth, and it's soon clear that Ash is now the only living being in the area not given over to the ravages of demonic occupation. 
which is Linda's cue to attack him again, coming back inside, either through the back door or one of the many, many smashed windows, and stabbing him with the Kandarian dagger. He wrests it away from her and stabs her in the back, seemingly killing her, but we already know how well that works and we know there's only one way to permanently put her down. And so does Ash. He drags her body out to the tool shed and straps it to the work table using the chains we saw earlier, which do appear to have been purpose-built for this exact reason, raising real questions about the cabin's original owner. He pulls out a chainsaw, but he can't quite bring himself to dismember her body. He still loves the person she was. Too much. I feel like we can't go by this sequence without describing the way it's shot. A rapid-fire montage of vivid images, each no more than a couple of seconds in length. There's a cut to him turning on the light, another to a rat scurrying away from the sudden brightness, a cut to the chains, a cut to the body. It's an amazing tactic, giving us a clear and vivid picture of a whole sequence of actions without the tedium of showing us every step in the process. And I feel like it's become a trademark not just of Raimi's, but of everyone who saw this movie and realized that you could greatly speed up storytelling in this manner. Not to spoil future episodes, but if you've ever seen the way Edgar Wright made Simon Pegg brushing his teeth look intensely dramatic in Shaun of the Dead, then you know what this looks like and how genuinely influential this movie was. Again, Raimi and Kubrick were filming this and The Shining at virtually the same time, and I know which one of them put a greater stamp on future generations of directors. Also, the chainsaw was real, functional, and sharp. They tried to find a way to neutralize the teeth that didn't look obvious on film, but Campbell just said, look, I've got a good grip and I won't get that close. Needless to say, you can actually see Betsy Baker's carotid artery pumping in terror during this scene, even though honestly, it's probably safer than the earlier gun scene where Bruce Campbell had a shotgun pointed directly at his face. This was a very unsafe set. I cannot emphasize that enough. Ash goes out to bury Linda, and we get a callback to the earlier sequence with the necklace as she opens her eyes whenever he looks away, only to close them when he glances back at her. This is all intercut with Cheryl flinging herself bodily against the cellar door. Linda doesn't do anything, though, allowing herself to be placed into the open grave before Ash fills it in. There's another really clever trick with perspective here. The scene is shot from below, with Campbell throwing dirt directly onto the camera until all of the light is completely covered. There's just so much inventive visual storytelling here that you can't even talk about it all. Ash notices the necklace lying next to the grave, though, and when he goes down to pick it up, Linda emerges with a much more demonic appearance and claws up his leg. He suffered real injuries during this sequence, which became infected. Again, let's not romanticize this. Ash picks up a large board lying nearby and pummels her with it. One minor flaw is that it's so obvious given the size of the board and the speed and ease with which he wields it that we know it's foam. But still, low-budget production, you gotta give it some slack. And his attempts fail when Linda grabs the other end and lifts him clean into the air before throwing him on top of the open grave. She then launches herself through the air at him, but Ash grabs the shovel and decapitates her mid-jump. The body lands on him and tries to attack him further, but he gets away and goes back inside. Only to find the cellar door open and Cheryl missing. Realizing the danger he's in, he grabs the gun and begins searching for her room by room, only to find her when she reaches for the shotgun through an open window. 
he tags her with the gun, but she goes for the front door and he narrowly manages to close it in time, on her hand in a spectacular but brief moment of gore. He then closes the back door, and as with Friday the 13th, it's almost amusing how inadequate these precautions are given the sheer number of broken windows in the building, and goes down to the cellar for more shotgun shells. And what follows is one of the most surreal sequences in the movie. It's inspired, oddly enough, by an old Three Stooges short. The Three Stooges have faded into history somewhat by now, but they were an immensely popular group of comedians who produced over 200 short films for a variety of studios with a few different lineups. The term fake shemp, which is used in this movie for anyone who body doubled for a member of the cast, a practice made increasingly necessary when the period allotted for principal photography ended and much of the cast departed for home, comes from the practice of using body doubles to cover the joins between material filmed with Shemp Howard and material filmed after his death, and in this particular case, avowed Stooges fan Sam Raimi took a gag in the 1940 short A Plumbing We Will Go and turned it into a nightmare. In that short, Moe and Curly wind up accidentally cross-wiring the plumbing with the electrical wires, causing not a short circuit, but a series of surreal comedy mishaps where the electrical sockets, light bulbs, and television set all start gushing water. It's a funny gag there, but here it's blood that flows out of every pipe and every electrical socket, and even down the lens of the old movie projector in the corner when it suddenly starts up. Yes, it's another example of keeping the blood running down the screen. The result is a genuinely dreadful and unnerving sequence, unlike anything anybody had seen in horror at the time, all scored incongruously enough to an old record that begins playing itself with a dance called the Charleston. Ash nonetheless manages to grab his shotgun shells, using a rag to wipe the blood off his face even though it remains soaked into his clothes. The blood was actually a mix of caro syrup, non-dairy creamer, and food coloring, and it was so difficult to remove that when Campbell tried to dry out his shirt between takes in front of the fire, he wound up solidifying the sugar in the syrup and his shirt literally broke when he tried to put it back on. He also had an enormous fly problem. Once he's armed again, he heads back up the stairs and finds the same surreal weirdness waiting for him there. The clock's hands are spinning freely, and its pendulum is smashing from side to side like a wrecking ball. This is an homage to 1963's The Haunting. And we get an astonishing 180-degree vertical pan over Campbell's head as he looks around the room in terror. Raimi was so insistent on getting this shot that he literally hung from a rafter on the ceiling. The shutters slam themselves, the mirror becomes a pool of reflective water that his hand goes straight into, and in general the whole world becomes so fucked up and trippy that Ash wastes his first shell shooting at a shadow outside the window. He puts his back to the door to reload, just waiting for the next surreal terror, but instead Cheryl puts her hand straight through the door and grabs at his head. He manages to pull away, shooting his sister through the jaw and barricading the door with a sewing table, but just then Scotty gets back up and attacks him. Ash throws random objects at him, including the Book of the Dead itself, which lands near the fire, but it doesn't help, and soon Scotty has picked him up by the neck and is choking the life out of him. Until Ash puts both thumbs into Scotty's eye sockets all the way up to the knuckle, which apparently gives even demons a little bit of a pause for thought. Scotty lets him go, and Ash pulls out the branch he was impaled on, which causes blood to gush out of him like a fountain. 
he begins smoking, and Ash looks over to see the book beginning to smolder and makes an immediate connection. He tries to go over and throw it in the fire, but just then Cheryl breaks in and the two of them begin to drag him away. Luckily, he still has, um, Linda's necklace? Which he uses as an improvised, uh, grappling hook? To grab the book and bring it close enough to him that he can pick it up and hurl it into the flames. This was the closest they could come to making use of the pendant, which they felt they'd foreshadowed too much to simply discard in the third act. With the book in the fire, both of the undead freeze. Then, in a triumph of gory stop-motion, their bodies rapidly decay into grotesqueries of rotting flesh, complete with little green worms that crawl on them. Then gigantic hands burst out of their abdomens, as though the demons inside them are trying to physically crawl out of their hosts and escape, before they finally collapse to the ground and crumble to powder before Ash's horrified eyes. He also gets splattered with a ton more gore here. Sam Raimi famously loves to find ways to torture his best friend on camera, as we'll see as we go on in the series. With the bodies gone and the cries of Join us gradually fading into the distance, Ash pulls himself to his feet and leaves the cabin to the sound of soulful string music and cheerful birdsong. He looks up at the rising sun, grateful to have survived. But off in the woods, the unseen force rises up from the ground, unwilling to see its prey escape. It tears through the forest at a ferocious speed, bursting through the cabin and smashing each door as it goes by it, and Ash has just enough time to turn and scream as we cut to black. It was intended as a bleak, miserable ending to what the crew called the ultimate experience in grueling terror, no, that's literally right there in the credits. But of course, fate had different plans for Ashley Williams. And for Sam Raimi, for that matter. He intended this to be a calling card to Hollywood, and in a sense, it worked. The film was seen by Stephen King, who was at the time probably at the absolute peak of his legendary influence over the horror community, and he wrote an entire article for Twilight magazine after seeing the movie at Con. It was screened out of competition, needless to say. The rave review got it picked up for distribution, and Raimi got his next gig. But, as we'll see, he still had a few twists and turns on his journey to Hollywood. And will I hang on to this movie? You know I will. As with a very few others, this is a movie from my personal collection that I happen to see at a half-price books, rendering it eligible for inclusion, and I've been a fan of this ever since high school. I've actually seen a 35mm print of it at the campus theater in college. We were never asked to return it, so any film scholars looking to find Evil Dead in 35mm could do worse than digging around the University of Minnesota West Bank campus, and it remains a favorite of mine to this day. The only reason it's not my 100th episode is I can only do that once, and this isn't the movie that introduced me to the trilogy. But we'll talk about that later. And if you want to talk about 100th episodes, Sam Raimi's directorial genius, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watchlist on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, 
There's a saying from Douglas Adams that if you want to know where you've been, you need to first look at where you're going and work backwards. And since we're going to be watching Sam Raimi's masterpiece Evil Dead 2 in a couple of episodes' time, it's important to work backwards to look at the movies and the directors that Raimi himself was influenced by in ways large and small. Which means we need to take a look at the legendary 1963 ghost story The Haunting from director Robert Wise and see what he did to make Sam Raimi the man he became. See you then.